Welcome to Module 4 of Administrative Law at the University of Ottawa Law School. I'm Craig Forces. In Module 3, we ran through almost a thousand years of United Kingdom constitutional history to the point where, by the 19th century, the United Kingdom had a public law system built on several critical notions. First, that all people, even the most powerful, are subordinated by the law. Second, that Parliament, and not the monarch, is the supreme political and legal authority. Third, that judges may enforce the rule of law and are therefore independent of the monarch and executive government and of the legislature. And last, that we have a separation of powers between Parliament and the judiciary and the executive that, among other things, includes responsible government and the notion that the ministry must enjoy the confidence of the House of Commons. We have also the beginnings of democracy. Today we examine how all this United Kingdom history became relevant in a handful of distant and rather unimportant British North American colonies. And we also look at the North American setting and how it contributed other features to Canadian public law not reflected in this UK experience. And along the way we shall encounter the other fundamental public law principles we have yet to see. Federalism constitutional supremacy, human rights, and the Indigenous fact. Let me start by focusing on that question of the Indigenous fact. I'll start by noting that when the Europeans arrived in the New World in 1492, the place bustled with activity. North America was populated, in some places densely populated, and densely populated in a way that has now largely been forgotten. Some estimates of total indigenous population in 1492 in the Americas as a whole are as high as 100 million. Estimates in present-day Canada range from half a million to two million. This is smaller than comparable European populations, but not, as has sometimes been assumed, by many orders of magnitude. The population of England and Wales at around the same time was probably around three million, and of France around 15 million. Indigenous populations crashed after contact through disease, starvation, and conflict, especially as waves of epidemic old-world diseases afflicted populations that had acquired no immunity to them. The result was a demographic catastrophe that rippled through the North American indigenous population and affected their political future. But the bottom line was that when Europeans arrived in the New World, there were indigenous populations with their own political orders. And initially, European settler populations in French and British colonies recognized this truth, in part because of the military balance of power during the original period of colonization, one that rarely favored Europeans. And yet Europeans ultimately successfully asserted sovereignty over the North American territories, initially in contests against one another and ultimately in a manner that sidelined the indigenous political order. Our focus here is on the British assertion of sovereignty because of Canada's ultimate status as a British colony after the conquest of Quebec and its transfer from France to the United Kingdom in 1763. The first issue we have to grapple with is this. How did the English acquire sovereignty over the lands of the New World? At the end of the 15th century, when Europeans began their scramble for the Americas, there were no real rules for the acquisition of territories that were not already within the jurisdiction of a recognized sovereign, typically a European one. 
As a consequence, the Europeans devised artifices to bolster their shaky claims to new territories, relying on papal bulls, treaties with rival states or indigenous leaders, settlement, and just plain military occupation. And so through the Americas as a whole, the historical legal basis for European sovereignty is variable. In English law, the acquisition of new territory was part of the royal prerogative. The crown could assert sovereignty as it saw fit. And the common law of England had various rules on what would happen in the new territory upon the assertion of this sovereignty, depending on how the territory was acquired. First, in relation to conquered or ceded territory, that is territory transferred by treaty. Local laws and customs remained insofar as they were not unconscionable or incompatible with the change in sovereignty, and they remained in force until altered or replaced by the crown. Second, for deserted or empty territory, so-called terra nullius, English law accompanied the colonists to the extent it was applicable to the local circumstances. Let's talk a little bit more about this deserted or empty territory concept. In an uninhabited territory, there were no landholders whose interests in the land could burden the interests that flowed to the crown. As a consequence, the crown obtained absolute title over empty lands and remained seized of these lands until it chose to grant them out. When uninhabited territory was taken by English settlers with the crown's assent, sovereignty was said to vest in the crown, and the settlers then had to rely on crown grant to acquire a legal interest in the land. This process by which ownership of newly encountered empty lands flowed to the crown is often called the doctrine of discovery in international law, and it was a recognized doctrine of international law during the period of European expansionism. It's not too much of an exaggeration to say it amounted to planting the cross or flag, declaring the territory claimed, and voila, the crown has title. So in which category, empty or conquered, did the North American territories fall? Well, conquest had its place. When the British took possession of Canada, it was conquered from the French. But of course, the French themselves were European newcomers to the New World, and so their own claim to sovereignty undergirded any subsequent assertion of rights by England after the Seven Years' War. In many cases, ultimate European claims to the Americas were based on a deserted or empty territory theory, the terra nullius concept. The fact that these lands were not actually empty, and in fact were often densely populated by many indigenous groups, was discounted usually on the basis of one or more rationalizations. First, indigenous people were disqualified from landholding by virtue of their heathenism. They weren't Christians. Second, indigenous people were too primitive, it was said, to be accorded property rights. The indigenous peoples, it was said, had too much land and were not making effective use of it. After all, reasoned the Europeans, civilized agriculturalists should be able to displace uncivilized hunter-gatherers. Of course, this approach is unjust to the modern mind, and even some contemporary observers thought that simply pushing indigenous people out of the equation went too far. Vittoria, a Spanish jurist of the early 1500s, argued that indigenous peoples could not be denied ownership rights simply because they weren't Christian. And the Pope, Paul III, in 1537, issued a papal bull indicating that Indians and all other persons who may later be discovered by Christians are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or the possession of their property, even though they be outside of the faith of Jesus Christ. 
But more than that, this notion that the colonizers could take uncultivated lands because those lands were being used by hunter-gatherers hardly rang true in England itself. English lords set aside for themselves enormous tracts of land for hunting, and these lands were hardly cultivated. So if you were a primitive hunter-gatherer in England hunting foxes, that was fine. It wasn't fine if you were an indigenous person in North America. So the conception in the Americas of terra nullius was inconsistent not only with our own modern views on fairness and law, but also inconsistent with English practice at the time. And yet it was this taint of terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery that it permitted that continues to affect our understanding of indigenous interests and rights even today. In some significant sense, the doctrine of discovery is Canada's original sin. Canada and Canadian public law is ultimately based on an ethnocentric fiction, and efforts to grapple with this fact and reconcile it with more modern conceptions of justice is probably the chief public law challenge of our era. That's not to say that the English assertion of sovereignty meant instant discounting of the indigenous fact. For one thing, the English entered into treaties with indigenous nations on effectively a nation-to-nation -nation basis. For another, in 1763, just as it assumed control over the new Canadian territories conquered from the French, the British king issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763. This was a recognition that the military balance of power in many places still lay with indigenous populations. The proclamation was a, an expedient instrument designed to control and limit colonial expansion and to interpose the crown between settlers and indigenous populations to limit disputes. But these provisos effectively treated indigenous peoples as less than sovereign. They specified that land could only be transferred from indigenous populations to the crown itself in practice through treaties of cession. The proclamation therefore assumed an underlying entitlement to the indigenous territories. This approach was affirmed in early U.S. Supreme Court decisions in the early 19th century with reference to the doctrine of discovery. In a famous decision, McIntosh, the U.S. Supreme Court held that indigenous people were admitted to be the rightful occupants of the soil with a legal as well as just claim to retain possession of it and to use it according to their own discretion. But their rights to complete sovereignty as independent nations were necessarily diminished and their power to dispose of the soil at their own will to whomsoever they pleased was denied by the original fundamental principle that discovery gave exclusive title to those who made it. By the mid-19th century, and with changing demographic and military circumstances after the War of 1812, there was no doubt that the British relationship with indigenous peoples had morphed from one of sovereign to one of subject. This was confirmed in legal prose in 1888 in a case called St. Catherine's Milling. There, the highest UK court with appellate jurisdiction over Canada looked to the reasoning in Mackintosh and concluded that indigenous people possessed only rights to use and occupy territories, but that the crown possessed the underlying sovereign title. And so in practice, the indigenous fact was discounted. Indigenous legal traditions did occasionally influence court decisions in private law areas. Treaties continued to be negotiated, but these treaties became increasingly one-sided. By the period of confederation in Canada, indigenous, non-indigenous relations were largely about indigenous relocation, assimilation, that is behavioral modification regarded as improvement by Europeans, and also dispossession of territory. Sometimes, even often, the motivations were paternalistic and tied to the age's conceptions of humanitarianism, but the results were usually disastrous for indigenous populations.
And in the end, the Indigenous fact played no role in the development of Canadian public law during that mid-19th century period in which that Canadian public law really began to take shape. And so let me now turn to that mid-19th century period, focusing on developments in this time, and specifically on struggles for responsible government in pre-Confederation British North America. So I'll start in the 1830s, the same decade with which I ended the prior module on English public law. In North America, north of the Rio Grande, in the 1830s, the continent was fissioned between an ambitious young republic, the United States, that half a century before had successfully rebelled against British colonial governance, and a residue of British North American colonies clustered on the northern part of the continent's eastern seaboard, in the Maritimes, in the conquered portions of New France, and also in Newfoundland. As of 1791, and the Constitutional Act of 1791, these regions in conquered New France were called Lower Canada and Upper Canada, correlating roughly to the core of today's Quebec and Ontario. And they, like other British North American colonies, were governed very differently than the practices in the United Kingdom itself. The colonies had elected assemblies, albeit elected by less than universal adult suffrage, although sometimes there were more liberal voting rules here than existed in the United Kingdom. And they had colonial governors, aided by executive councils appointed by these governors. But there was no responsible government. Executive councils were not linked to the executive assemblies. They were not accountable to them. And indeed, they were members of political and economic elites appointed for life. And these councils wielded local governance authority. In the result, the proto-democratic institutions, the legislative assemblies, had no power. This graded on reformers, looking not just to developments in the United Kingdom, but to the even more democratic United States. The constitutional arrangement and other divisions between the elite commanding political power and others in society precipitated two rebellions in 1837-38, one in Lower Canada and the other in Upper Canada. Neither amounted to much militarily, although the Lower Canada Rebellion resulted in some serious military engagements and deaths, and overall the two uprisings culminated in many prison sentences, exiled to Australia, which was then a British penal colony, and several executions. The rebellions did, however, attract the attention of a generally distracted Britain, and the new governor, Lord Durham, produced a report proposing the fusing of the two colonies, a policy of assimilation towards Francophones and, more positively, responsible government. The fusing took place, and representation in the new Legislative Assembly of the Province of Canada was weighted equally between the two former colonies, a source of controversy in the expanding Canada West, now Ontario. But the British did not establish responsible government in that Union Act of 1840. That arrived only a few years later, first in Nova Scotia, followed soon after in other British colonies. Now, at this point forward, the membership of executive councils depended on the confidence of legislative assemblies. And in practice, the members of those executive councils were drawn from the legislative assemblies. Now, to say the colonies achieved responsible government isn't to say that the colonies were independent of Britain. No, if colonial statutes conflicted with the statutes of the British Parliament that expressly applied to the colonies, then the British laws prevailed. Under the Colonial Laws Validity Act, the latest of which was in 1865, this arrangement stayed in place until the enactment by the British Parliament of the Statute of Westminster in 1931. After 1931, and only after 1931, British statutes only applied if the colonies asked them to apply. 
But responsible government was an accomplishment that politicians of the era were keen to preserve as talk turned to conjoining the British North American colonies into a new confederation. The timing of such a union was not accidental. The question of representation between East and West Canada in the unified post-1840 colony graded and called out for resolution, as did regular political chaos erupting in this fused colony. There were expensive railway and canal ventures that had left colonies with serious financial difficulties. Previously protected British commercial trade was being lost, increasing appetite for enhanced intercolonial trade. And meanwhile, colonial trade with the United States was in jeopardy, given British sympathy for the Confederates during the American Civil War. And there was a real risk that the victorious U.S. Unionists and their armies would simply turn north and squelch the remaining British administrations in North America. Militarily, the British colonies would be no match for a battle-hardened U.S. Army, and the British were keen to see a more robust, unified, and loyal colony that would not call upon British arms for its survival. In the end, the Imperial Parliament, that is the UK Parliament, enacted the British North America Act of 1867. And this was the act of the British Parliament that confederated the British North American colonies. As lightly amended, it is now called the Constitution Act of 1867 and is the chief constituting document creating Canada. But ironically, nowhere in this act does it speak of responsible government. Indeed, nowhere does it truly incorporate expressly any of those principles I talked about in tracing UK public law history rule of law, parliamentary sovereignty, judicial independence, or the sort of separations of power that we associate with responsible government. Even democracy has a muted presence in the Constitution Act of 1867. The instrument anticipated election of members to the House of Commons and provincial legislatures, but contains few rules governing how voting and elections work. The Constitution Act of 1867, in other words, reads very much like an absolutist instrument that a Stuart King of the 17th century would be pleased with. So given all this, how is it that we have responsible government in modern Canada? Well, for one thing, the 1867 Act included in its preamble that Canada was to have a constitution similar in principle to that of the United Kingdom. This is the principle, though not the only source, for a puzzling but vital concept the unwritten constitution. Largely because of this preambular phrase, our unwritten constitution is taken as including the principles, although not necessarily the precise text, containing all of the great landmarks in English constitutional history, the Magna Carta, the Petition of Rights, the Bill of Rights of 1688, the Act of Settlement of 1701, and the generally recognized conventions of the English constitution, including responsible government. The Supreme Court over the years has found all sorts of meaningful principles in the preamble drawn from this UK legacy. The preamble of the 1867 Act has been found to guarantee, among other things, judicial independence, the continuance of parliamentary governance, and the guarantee that legislative bodies in Canada possess similar, although not necessarily identical, powers to the English Parliament as of 1867. Democratic institutions and a Parliament working under the influence of public opinion and public discussion. Ministers responsible to the House of Commons and with the Parliament supreme in the government of the nation. Political neutrality of Crown servants. The rule of law. Separation of powers. And even an implied Bill of Rights guarding such things as freedom of speech. All of these are said to have been embedded in that preamble. So the Constitution Act of 1867 bootstraps the UK constitutional legacy into Canadian public law and is the source, at least in part, of the rule of law, parliamentary supremacy, judicial independence, separation of powers, and to some extent, democracy. 
Well, what else does the Constitution Act of 1867 do? It does something alien to the UK experience, something that reflects Canada's North American origins, or at least the colonial aspects of those. It creates a federal public law system in which power is divided between a federal central order of government and multiple provincial governments. And it does that because confederation was just that, an amalgamation of different British colonies with often quite distinct political histories, not to mention the blending of the so-called two founding nations, those descended from British settlers and those descended from French settlers. As noted, the indigenous fact was largely discounted by this period. And so the Constitution Act of 1867 is a source of another one of those underlying public law principles, federalism. The preamble to the Constitution Act says that the provinces are federally united to form Canada. Our federal system gives each province exclusive authority over most of the local affairs of the province and its residents. The national or federal government is generally responsible for the country as a whole or for matters that cross provincial boundaries. However, there is no precise automatic standard way of deciding which powers should be given to the provinces and which the federal level. Sections 91 and 92 of the Constitution Act of 1867 try to divvy these powers between the two levels. Most of these powers are exclusive. One or other of the levels of government controls them. Some are concurrent, like agriculture and immigration. But the list in sections 91 and 92 and other related provisions in the Constitution Act of 1867 is finite. It's a finite list. And the courts have had to breathe meaning into these antiquated words as the country has evolved. And there have been many court challenges regarding the meaning of these words, the subject matter of your constitutional two studies. Now note that the levels of government are expected to comply with this federal division of power, and they have been expected to so comply since 1867. And if there is any doubt over whether they do comply, independent courts applying the basic precept of the rule of law are competent to adjudicate who is right and who is wrong. And indeed, courts have essentially always acted to invalidate laws that fall outside of the jurisdiction of the issuing legislature under the divisions of power, that is, the constitutional concept of federalism. And so what does this mean for parliamentary sovereignty? Remember, parliament is supposed to be the font of all power and all legal authority, which translates into parliament can do whatever it wants. But in a federal system, this is no longer true. Parliament is supreme only within those areas assigned to it by the constitutional division of powers. Likewise, provincial legislatures enjoy a species of sovereignty within their zone of responsibility under the Constitution, but no further. And that concept of limited or curtailed parliamentary sovereignty presents another in our series of constitutional principles, constitutional supremacy. Constitutional supremacy is a subset of the rule of law, and it basically boils down to the requirement that even otherwise supreme legislatures must obey the Constitution. And likewise, the executive branch of the different levels of political order in our federation are expected to obey the Constitution. But of course, the constitutional drama does not end in 1867. There's a more recent development. In 1982, the Canadian Constitution was patriated. It was brought from Britain, so to speak. For the final time, the UK Parliament passed a statute that became constitutional law in Canada. This last British statute terminated the British Parliament's power over Canada and codified the Constitution Act of 1982. What did this Constitution Act of 1982 do? Well, three things of real importance for public law. 
First, Section 35 of the Constitution Act of 1982 recognizes and affirms the existing treaty and Aboriginal rights of Aboriginal peoples, a concept I'll return to in a moment. Second, it set up an amending formula for the Canadian Constitution. And third, it introduced the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Now, the process of patriation was not accomplished without conflict. Ultimately, after a court challenge, Pierre Trudeau obtained the agreement of all the provinces except Quebec. But a concession was needed to acquire this consent. That is, the so-called notwithstanding provision in Section 33 of the Charter. So what is the Charter? Well, you've already studied it by the time you've reached this class, Administrative Law. But let me propose for our purposes, it is another North American component of our public law system. It codifies into the Constitution itself individual rights and liberties. This is what I shall call the human rights principle of public law. Its indirect inspiration is, in this manner, another North American influence, that of the United States Constitution and its Bill of Rights, limiting the power of the state to interfere with fundamental liberties and freedoms. A constitutionalized Bill of Rights protects human beings from the excess of the state. But just like the federalism principle, the human rights principle has a collateral effect. It reduces the power of the legislature, and in practice, the executive branches, and also increases the power of the judiciary. Why? Because the Charter said there are certain things you, the executive, and the legislature are not permitted to do. And courts were given the power to determine whether the executive and legislature were doing these sorts of things, and whether doing these sorts of things was justified in a free and democratic society, the so-called Section 1 concept. So like the constitutional division of powers in the Constitution Act of 1867, the Charter is a manifestation of constitutional supremacy, enforced by courts, applying the rule of law, and it is therefore an instrument that further trenches on an absolute form of parliamentary sovereignty. But because at least some provinces weren't happy about this prospect and the erosion of their supremacy in their areas of responsibility, they managed to win inclusion of Section 33 of the Charter, which, as you know, empowers Parliament or the legislature of a province to expressly declare in a statute that that statute or provision thereof shall operate notwithstanding a provision included in Section 2 or Section 7 to 15 of the Charter. This is the so-called notwithstanding clause. Now, as I noted, the Constitution Act of 1982 did more than introduce the Charter. It also recognized and affirmed the existing treaty and Aboriginal rights of Aboriginal peoples. And so it's time now to come full circle in this discussion of the underlying principles of public law in their North American setting and talk about the last one to receive true recognition in our constitutional fabric, the Indigenous fact. And as I noted at the outset of this module, this Indigenous fact was suppressed for almost 200 years, if not more. And that finally has begun to change, albeit slowly. And Section 35 has had the effect of restoring Indigenous rights into the firmament of Canadian public law with profound potential to reshape our society. In important respects, restoring the Indigenous fact to public law in an effort is an effort to diminish the importance of the historical fallacy our entire state is built on, the doctrine of discovery. The net effect of Section 35 is to create another caveat on the expression of absolute parliamentary sovereignty. Parliament and the provincial legislatures are not sovereign to the point of ignoring Aboriginal rights, including in relation to treaty obligations and Aboriginal title to land. And so to sum up, from 1215 and the Magna Carta in England to the Post-Constitution Act of 1982 in Canada, we have witnessed an 800-year public law revolution. 
Our British legacy brings the rule of law, parliamentary sovereignty, judicial independence, and the principle of separation of powers that incorporates responsible government and also the democratic principle. The net effect of these developments by the mid-1900s is to create a supreme parliament whose membership is at least partially determined by at least a partially democratic process. Our North American legacy, meanwhile, culminated in federalism, constitutional supremacy. I would add also a firmer recognition of the democratic principle through the inclusion of democratic rights in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and now also a revitalized recognition of the indigenous fact. And so to portray this schematically, when the framers of our constitutional fabric concluded their bargain in the 1860s, they built on the foundations of the United Kingdom experience. First, they created a system with supreme legislative power that through the preamble of the Constitution Act of 1867 incorporated by reference that UK legacy. But the framers of our constitutional settlement did something very North American. They took that supreme parliamentary power, and also many of the crown powers, I would add, and divided them in two between federal and provincial levels of government. And in so doing, they made the rules dividing this power, the principle of federalism, mandatory as a constitutional obligation that all branches of the state at both the provincial and federal level are supposed to observe. And in the event of a dispute, the courts would adjudicate the matter, interpret the division of powers, and determine the outcome. In this matter, the framers of our system, right from the beginning of Canada, made the Constitution supreme over parliamentary supremacy. Legislatures could not simply ignore these rules. If they wanted to change them, then the rules had to be amended. And in fact, the rules were amended from time to time thereafter, often through imperial legislation from the UK Parliament. But most importantly, in 1982, our constitution was patriated from the United Kingdom when the United Kingdom Parliament passed a last law creating constitutional principles for Canada. And that last law incorporated the Constitution Act of 1982 into our system. And that Constitution Act of 1982 imported as well the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It embedded enumerated human rights into our constitutional fabric. And this amounted to another limit on the supremacy of Canadian legislative bodies. They can generally not act in a manner violating these rights. And if disputes arise as to whether they have, the matter is adjudicated by the courts who interpret the words of the Charter and determine the outcomes. But the Charter and the Human Rights Principle is a less absolute form of constitutional supremacy than is federalism. Why? Well, because of the notwithstanding clause. That Constitution Act of 1982 did another thing. It incorporated Aboriginal rights into the Canadian constitutional fabric and restored that ninth public law principle, the Indigenous fact. The net effect of this development is to create another caveat on the expression of absolute parliamentary sovereignty. Parliament and the provincial legislatures are not sovereign to the point of ignoring Aboriginal rights. The result of this evolution is a very different public law order than exists in the United Kingdom or frankly anywhere else. And sometimes political commentators and others chafe at this system, and especially constitutional supremacy and the role of the courts in guaranteeing it. In this respect, however, part of the constitutional supremacy introduced in the Constitution Act of 1982 is a system for amending the Constitution. And so, if political actors were really truly concerned that our public law system had fallen off the rails, they possessed the ultimate power to change it. That, then, is the 1,000-meter overview, and it should be a repetition, a review of principles of public law you have learned in different classes over the course of your legal studies. 
What we need now to do in the next module is to take a subset of these principles and to drill down and investigate how they lead into a conversation about administrative law. This ends module four. Thank you.